A Brush With is sponsored by Bloomberg Connects, the app for arts and culture. Created by Bloomberg Philanthropies, Bloomberg Connects lets you access museums, galleries and cultural spaces around the world on demand. Download the app to access digital guides and explore a variety of content. Hello, I'm Ben Luke and welcome to A Brush With, the podcast where I talk to artists about their influences, including artists, writers, filmmakers, composers and musicians, and the cultural experiences that have shaped their lives and work. And in this episode, it's A Brush With Cornelia Parker, who, with works ranging from dramatic room-filling installations to subtle ephemeral objects, has created some of the most profound, witty and thought-provoking art of recent decades. Common to her work are acts of transformation, from the violent to the surreal and the whimsical. She takes found objects and substances and through hugely varied processes lends them new, often multi-layered meanings. Cornelia was born in 1956 in Cheshire in northwest England and grew up on a farm there before studying art first at Gloucestershire College of Art and Design and then at Wolverhampton Polytechnic and Reading University. Among her breakthrough works was 30 pieces of silver made in 1988 for the Icon Gallery in Birmingham, UK. It was made up of dozens of silver objects that had all been flattened by a steamroller before being assembled into 30 circular forms suspended on wire just above the floor. An effect as Cornelia has said, almost like lily pads on water. And suspension became one of her signature artistic gestures. Perhaps her most famous work is Cold Dark Matter, an exploded view from 1991, in which she asked the British Army to blow up a garden shed and rearrange the fragments as if they were frozen immediately after the explosion. The objects, from tools and toys to the splintered planks of wood, were hung around a single light bulb, which meant that they cast huge and dramatic shadows around the room. Cold Dark Matter, whose title is taken from the astrophysics term relating to unquantifiable matter in the universe, has become one of the most popular contemporary works in the Tate collection. The use of a single light bulb is also a common device in Cornelia's work. It's at the heart of Perpetual Canon from 2004, a hanging work with flattened brass musical instruments, and in War Room of 2015, which decorates an entire gallery space with bright red paper punched through with the negative shapes of the poppies produced for the annual British War Remembrance ceremonies. Like many of her works, the springboard for War Room was an existing work of art, the crimson tents in a 16th century drawing of the Field of the Cloth of Gold, the name given to a meeting to broker peace between the English king, Henry VIII, and the French king, Francis I. In parallel to these enveloping total environments and striking sculptural pieces, there's also a rich strand of drawing in her work, often with extraordinary materials. Bullet drawings made from bullets melted down and turned into different thicknesses of wire, poison and antidote drawings made from rattlesnake venom and its antidote, and pornographic drawings made from the videotape of porn films confiscated by customs and dissolved in solvent to make ink. She's also produced smaller sculptures that are often ephemeral in material, but just as meaty and captivating in their content and significance. Many of them form a series called Avoided Objects, things that have been changed through destructive or transformative acts. Cornelia said that they relate to cartoon deaths, whether that's steamrolling, exploding, shooting, or indeed being thrown off a cliff, as in Object That Fell Off the White Cliffs of Dover from 1992, a teapot she tossed off the coast of England. Cornelia regularly returns to silver objects and the Dover cliffs. They're among many symbolic references to British customs, identity and nostalgia that punctuate her work. A subtle strain of politics has always underlined her practice, but it's become particularly dominant since the mid-2000s, when she made Chomsky in Abstract, a film in which she interviews the American linguist and political activist Noam Chomsky about the climate emergency. Works like Made in Bethlehem from 2012, in which she subtly addresses the situation in Palestine, and Magna Carta from 2015, in which she had the entire Wikipedia entry for the historic charter of English liberty made into a giant piece of embroidery by countless individuals, led to her being appointed the official artist for Britain's snap election in 2017. That prompted a number of works, including Election Abstract, in which Cornelia used Instagram as a medium for the first time. She also made the film American Gothic on the eve of the US election of Donald Trump in 2016. 
And politics informed two new works Cornelia's made for her retrospective at Tate Britain, a film about Britain's flag, and Ireland, a glass greenhouse whose windows have been whitewashed with chalk from those white cliffs at Dover. That this huge show should effectively begin with an exploded shed and end with a whitewashed greenhouse reflects the interwoven and cumulative power of Cornelia's body of work. It also reflects the fact that she can take the simplest materials and notions and make them spectacular and profound. And this is where I began our conversation. Cornelia's used a lovely phrase to describe what she does, maximalism with minimal means, and I asked her to say a little more about it. Well, a little stroke of chalk seen through a microscope has great import when it's Einstein's equations for his theory of relativity. But visually, you would never be able to tell that. You look at the little chalk mark and you think, oh, it looks like outer space or comet or whatever. So I quite like these loaded things, but somehow they become very abstract. And you've also talked about this idea of ordinary everyday objects being a catalyst for thought and I like that very much too and it seems that that's very much your engagement with your audience isn't it yeah I mean I make my work from the kitchen table (laughs) and very often it's very mundane material I'm dealing with Uh, like this new piece I'm trying to make which is called Island which is a greenhouse I got on eBay and then I'm going to paint on the panes of glass with the Wycliffe's Dover chalk so they'll become cliff drawings (laughs) and then I'm hoping you know this is a 50-50 chance of this happening but I've got these tiles from houses of Westminster Pugin tiles which from the corridors of power and I might use that as the foundation for the greenhouse so that the floor of the greenhouse will be parliament how extraordinary and that's the sort of legacy of your time there as as official election artist is it I think yes I think I must probably took that job on because I thought I might get some interesting you know scavenging (laughs) and uh, yeah I got a pallet of these tiles delivered from the house of commons to the Tate with the view that I might use them in an installation at a later date. So, uh, you know, I sometimes have materials for a long time and I don't know what I'm going to do with them. And then all of a sudden it becomes clear what to do with them. And, and you said often that your work comes to you very quickly. You can ponder a commission for some time and then suddenly when it does come, it comes very fast and it seems like it comes almost complete as an idea to you. Yes, but the idea, you have a complete idea, but you might not know what it's going to be like until you make it. Like the exploded shed, I had the idea quite quickly and then the actual physical result was, you know, great. It was very different from what I imagined there. Um, Tell us about the exploded shed because it's an enormously complex process, but did that process, as in an exploded shed that you would then hang as a hanging object in a gallery, was that complete in your mind when you first came up with the idea? Yes, I knew it would be suspended and it would be arrested in some way. And when I got all the fragments of the shed that had been blown up by the army back to the Chisenhale, and they were lying on the floor, all blackened and twisted and everything, I just thought, ooh, this might be a bit too heavy as a piece. And then when I started suspending them, then that went away, and it was, you know, they were mobilised again. And is it right that you initially thought that... It- might be blown up by the IRA because it was made in 1991 when the IRA was still a very sort of extant organisation affecting everyday British life, but then ended up with the British Army. <laughs> well, I uh, I don't think that was a serious <laughs> proposition, but, you know, we, we talked through, me and the curator, Jonathan Watkins, we talked through the different kinds of organisations that could help us with the explosions. So we need an explosive expert, we need somebody who's a licence, uh, and in the end, I didn't want special effects people from films. You know, the army seemed right. You know, it was a British institution. And the garden shed is also a British institution. So <laughs> one institution knocking off another seemed quite good. <laughs> Indeed. I'm really interested in the suspended works. What does suspension give the work? What is it about that kind of format that attracts you? I think it does what I said, which is to reanimate something. You know, it's not on the floor. 
you know, the steamroller went over the silver plate and squashed it all onto the floor, but then I elevated again. So I was giving it back its volume. So that's what happens with suspension, that it feels much more close to how I feel about life and mortality and all those things. Suspension somehow is is where we're at. That's what seems like it's a human condition, suspension. So I like using that uh, as a metaphor, perhaps. I mean, the greenhouse is not a suspended piece, but it will have a light inside which will glow and fade and glow, almost like breathing, or a lighthouse. And that will make the white marks on the greenhouse walls into black marks. Oh, how interesting. (laughs) You know, so that piece will be animated in a different way. You know, several of the works in the Tate are going to have a light inside it. That's kind of from the exploded shed, you know, to the poppy rooms to... Perpetual Canon, which is a musical instrument piece, um, which is, you know, shadows are very much part of that work. So, yeah, I, I think suspension, shadows, things in flux, things not being pinned down, you know, I like. Was suspension also something of a reaction to the kind of obsession in British sculpture and even with sculpture across the world with taking sculpture off the plinth which was quite a macho concern it was it was a sort of was it Judd that did it was it Caro that did it you know in in sculptural terms yeah I mean I suppose yeah I never really liked Anthony Caro (laughs) or not necessarily Henry Moore or or, um, Barbara Hepworth or I don't know I didn't like those solid heavy things you know I liked more the art of poverty and the light touch and the ephemeral you know the east Klein of this world but lumpism I call it <laughs> you know the history of sculptures full of it you know and it always seemed like it was too earthbound I mean I loved Bernini's Daphne and Apollo which is in in Rome and that lump of marble is turning into something almost airborne it's amazing so there is examples of sculpture from the past that I really like but they tend to be these more ethereal, momentous, you know, that Daphne and Apollo, she's being captured by Apollo and she's turning into a tree and it, it's amazing sculpture. Indeed it is. I'm interested in your early days in London. The group of people around you were artistic, but they weren't visual artists, lots of them. I mean, Heather Ackroyd was one of the visual artists, but also people like Peter Brook. I wonder yeah. if that having a contact with sort of an avant-garde community, if you like, but not just squarely located in the visual arts, sort of liberated how you worked in that sense. Yeah, and it, I mean, it had a precursor, because before I met Impact, I just threw Heather because she joined. I mean, I was in a theatre company with Heather as a designer for about a year, not very long, but she was at Croon Allsager College, which had this creative arts degree. You could have done sculpture and poetry, or you could have done dance and music. And I was asked in residence there for 18 months, and I had a really great time. You know, I made all design sets for plays. I made costumes that were worn for choreography. And it was very liberating from, you know, the white walls of the studio. So I, I really enjoyed that time. And then I've still got quite a lot of friends from that time. And then Heather joined this other theatre company called Impact Theatre that I, me and Heather both really liked their work. And that was where Pete Brooks was the director, Claire MacDonald. I think I keep in contact with everybody from that theatre company, except for Pete. Occasionally I see Pete, he asks me every two or three years to, to give a day or a lecture at St Martin's, which is where he's teaching. But um, yeah, it was a very exciting time. They were making really great theatre. They were travelling around Europe and I went with them as a <laughs> rudimentary lighting person. <laughs> and, you know, I was their number one groupie. that's great and I wanted to ask about drawing and because it seems to me that drawing is almost the sort of thing that underpins everything that you do there is drawing everywhere but Mm. often it's not with obvious materials it's often from transformed materials Mm. and do you see it in the same way that lots of artists do as a kind of formative process or do you treat it in the same way that you would, for instance, making film and video or sculpture or whatever? I think I treat it the same as anything else. It just takes on a different form. I like the term drawing because when you melt down metals and you draw it into wire, that's a literal sense of the word. So wedding rings made into a, a drawing. Um, and then I take the wire and I make something from it, like 
uh, just trap it between two sheets of glass and say it's a circumference of a living room, a wedding ring drawing, you know, or measuring Niagara as a teaspoon, you know, a teaspoon made into the height of Niagara Falls. So by drawing the metal, it makes it abstract. You know, a wedding ring is a really charged object, a silver spoon similarly. And then it loses all those cultural references and becomes this raw material. But then you, the viewer, are suspended with it. It's another suspension, really. And so they tack quite closely to what I'm doing with sculpture or film or whatever. One of the things about your work that I was conscious of is that I'd always thought of your work as very, having a particular connection to Britain and, and British culture. But actually, as you look at your career and you're at this moment organising a retrospective at Tate Britain, there's a lot of work that actually was made in the States. And it occurs to me that to put you squarely within the context of Britain is, is quite wrong, actually. And there's quite a lot that is concerned with the United States. Yeah, I mean, I had an American husband, you know, 23 years so, uh, <laughs> from Texas. So I, I, you know, and I've spent a lot of time in America one way or another. You know, I did the Met Roof Commission. And so New York, too, has been sort of very much a place I really like and go to. And the American West, you know, all the southern states, you know, they're really quite extraordinary. Yeah, and so there's a piece in the Tate show called American Gothic, which is New York in the week before Trump gets elected. So everything's been filmed in two-day period, you know, in the week before the election, starting on the 31st, which is Halloween, and then outside Trump Tower, as all these various groups massed to support Trump. And the Halloween characters on the street, after the parade, which happens in West Village, they're all the archetypes from films. You know, they're the Wizard of Oz, they're Freddy Krueger, you know, the Sons of the Lambs, Batman, Superman, all those American tropes that become art you know they're, they're a shorthand that we use too so I'm always interested in the cliche <laughs> you know and and I think all those characters are very much a vocabulary of, of America and then there's the Trump supporters which have now become a different group of characters it was almost sort of a premonition of, of January the 6th, that piece, in that sort of baying yes. mob kind yes, of mentality. Yes, yeah, that piece definitely in hindsight. And then what happened with Trump and, you know, what it's all turned out to be. It was a horrible premonition. <laughs> but I sort of felt that because I was working in New York that year. I could feel everything, you know, both the candidates were from New York, you know, mm. Hillary and Trump. And, the, you know... It was, there was a lot of anxiety flying around. It's funny because I thought that the streets would be on Halloween would be full of Trumps and Hillarys. And there weren't, there's only one. <laughs> that guy looked more like Boris Johnson. Than, uh, <laughs> um, scarily, you know, we, we, we've got, you know, Trump light in Britain. And then why do we have to copy America and everything? It's just, some, doesn't bode well. And of course, Texas and, you know, knowing Texas quite well, because I did a three month residency there. That's why I met and it was a you know special place san antonio and um, austin two good great cities um, but you know it's texas has now sort of slid into the abyss um <laughs> with you know anti-abortion laws and you know, all the rest of it so it's it's kind of a weird time yeah and there's a clear political direction of your work since a certain point particularly with your engagement with climate change would you say? yes i think i think yes i mean 2007 I went to Oxford University to do this workshop with climate scientists, which blew my mind because then I realised that there was a possibility of humankind not existing for very long. And they were busy trying to alert the politicians, no political will to pursue a green agenda. I mean, they were really desperate in a way, and I think they were appealing to the artistic community to see if they could somehow break through you know, so there was playwrights and Ian McEwen and Philip Pullman and people like that at this workshop. It was really interesting. And um, and then I thought, oh, God, you know, this is this is cataclysmic. You know, what am I going to do about it? So I thought I'd go and interview Noam Chomsky, <laughs> as you do. <laughs> I thought he might have some answers because, you know, he was one of the smartest people in the world in the room. And uh, he wasn't really talking about climate change at that point. So I went and saw him in Boston. 
Uh, I didn't think I was going to interview him. I thought that this show I was in was a Sharjah Biennale, and I thought I could invite him to Sharjah, and he could be talking to somebody else about it all, who knows a lot more than me. So uh, I went... I had all these questions and I didn't say to him, oh, the thing that you say to people, you you know, put the question into the answer, please. And um, <laughs> I just kind of burbled on and uh, he was really sweet because I had eight questions for him and I told him that at the beginning just so he knew. And um, his secretary burst into the room after the seventh question saying, time's up, time's up. And he said, oh, no, you have one more question. And I thought, that was great. And then he gave me this 11-minute like, monologue about <laughs> fear in America and, um, you know, to, to contribute to my um, anxiety. So that was a f- not the first film, but the first film of consequence I made. And it was called Chomsky and Abstract. And there were the lovely moments where he's listening to you, but we can't hear you. Yes. And so you have this sort of silent image and of he's Chomsky nodding and he's sort of nodding along yeah. oh I loved all that <laughs> I thought I could just make a short film called Chomsky listening to me <laughs> <laughs> yes no it was a, it was very edifying I'm glad he's still around as well and now he does talk a lot about climate change not necessarily because of me but you know me Klein has, is a good friend of his and she's been obviously writing books and stuff so yes it almost feels like a slow motion car crash really i mean my daughter who's 20 said to me mom are we going to see the end of the world well i said well, i don't really know I, I can't say but you know it could be a distinct possibility with all the ice caps melting much faster than they thought so it's, it is a weird thing to have a child and then not be able to answer their question. And then a couple of weeks ago, she, she phoned me up with the same question, except this was to do with Putin nuking us. <laughs> and and I thought, she said, are we going to die? Is this the end of the world? I said, well, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if I can answer that. Um, so, yeah, all these really kind of big questions, you know, that could play out in our lifetimes, you know. And then you think, what's art about? Let's move on to the questions we ask all our guests. Okay. Who was the first artist whose work you loved? Uh, Van Gogh. Because we had a, a framed, you know, one of his sunflowers on our wall when I was a kid. And, and there was a, a Turner, Fighting Temeraire, which I also love, and a Constable Hay Wayne, which I didn't like at all. <laughs> so I'd say, I'd say Van Gogh or Turner. You were on a small holding in Cheshire, right? And so you weren't from an artistic family at all. But I mean, it's clear that you had a kind of early interest in art. Where did that come from? It's one of the only subjects I was good at at school. And we had very good art teachers, a married couple, who took a special interest in me, I think. And for me, it was an escape. I wanted, obviously, to leave home, as we all do. (laughs) Got quite a tyrannical father, schizophrenic mother. I mean, it wasn't pleasant, my childhood. So I really needed to escape. And I thought art was extended play. (laughs) So I thought I'd sign up for that. So that's why I ended up being an artist, I think. That's a really nice way of putting it, extended play, because there's still an element of extended play in your work today, isn't there? There's a mischievousness as well. Yeah, I like to think of my work as tragicomic. <laughs> you know, like Beckett. I love Beckett, and I do think he's extraordinary. But there is pathos and hilarity and all the rest of it. I, I think I quite like getting the whole spectrum into my work. I know that's not always possible, but I try. And in terms of those early influences, of course, Turner, you made a work directly working with Turner paintings, or rather the backs of Turner paintings, these linings from Turner paintings. Tell us about that. Yeah, well, I just love Turner's late period, where he becomes more and more abstract. And I think I was nosing around in the uh, conservation areas, the Tate, as you do, and I came across these drawers full of these beautiful pieces of canvas, and I just, you know, great patina on them. You know, they look like Rothko's. I thought they were Rothko's. And uh, they said, no, no, they're the backs of Turner paintings, you know, when we re-stretched some of those canvases we took this canvas off and we kept them just so we can try varnishes or whatever you know if we need to know what a victorian or mid 1800s fabric is we can look at those so i said oh <laughs> can i borrow them so i borrowed them for my serpentine show which i had in 1998 and i made a little mini rothko room out of them 
So I borrowed seven of these and some tacking, you know, the margins off paintings that they just break off, you know, each time. And I had those too, you know. But they had some great titles, you know, like Rough Sea with Wreckage, you know, Venice at Sunset, very evocative titles. And then you got this abstract <laughs> piece of cloth, <laughs> which is the same title as the painting it came from. But I made them all into portrait rather than landscape um, and they had stains on the back and they had the Tate had flooded in 1928 and there was flood mark in all of them at the you know bottom edge so that was really quite wonderful and some had stretcher bars so they did look like Rothko's so it's like Turner meets Rothko. And is it right that you asked Nicholas Sorota who was director of the Tate at that point to acquire them for the Tate so that they would move from the conservation department into the actual sort of collection proper, as it were. Yes, I did. I was very cheeky. Uh, (laughs) I remember asking my gallery to do it for me, and they wouldn't. (laughs) So uh, I think it's because I was thinking of selling them to him. (laughs) No, anyway, I just wrote a cheeky letter saying, could this be possible? Because my work was going on a tour of three American places and I really wanted them to go on the tour so it would have been harder and harder for me to borrow them back especially if the conservation department started cutting holes in them so it took about a year (laughs) but in the end that's what happened they're now part of the contemporary collection authored by me (laughs) so I've acquisitioned the backs of Turner it's very cheeky of me and of course you were making an art historical point as well weren't you in that because of course Rothko loved Turner and it was that's the reason the Rothko room initially went to what was the Tate Gallery because Rothko had a deep love of Turner and wanted to be shown alongside him so you made that connection yes no I did yeah both of them are you know obviously great heroes of mine but I mean I've been to you know Euston and seen the Rothko Chapel and you know seen seen a lot of his work over the years but I mean that was great for the Tate wasn't it that they got that Mm. but again they're they're heading towards ephemerality you know they're not Jackson Pollock and you know they're not Franz Klein or you know what I mean they're they're more on the um, ephemeral end of painting. And which historical artist do you turn to the most today? Uh, Duchamp. (laughs) <laughs> I thought you might say that. <laughs> yeah well he, was, he wore so many hats you know and he was also very funny yeah I think his sense of humor is brilliant and um you can see his influence everywhere you know he's got his fingers all over the 20th century <laughs> and 21st century he's somebody I like to have met that would have been really good this gives us a great opportunity to talk about the distance, which is actually a work I was distantly connected to because I was the press officer at Tate Britain when this whole furore <laughs> happened around this work. So first of all, let's talk about what the work is and then we'll go, get into this sort of scandal that <laughs> happened around it. I know. Um, the, the work is Rodin's The Kiss plus Duchamp's Mile of String. Duchamp famously draped a Mile of String over a surrealist exhibition in New York. So all the other people in the show, nobody could get near their work because he'd sabotaged it all. Um, <laughs> and I, you know, wanted to do something with the Mile of String for some time. And I wanted to do something with the Kiss for, for the longest time. And then all of a sudden they came together. You know, they embraced each other. <laughs> and so I just thought the Kiss, which... You know, it's part of a bigger sculpture called The Gates of Hell. Um, And the kiss in that context is very dark. It's, you know, the couple get murdered by the woman's husband because she's having an adulterous affair. You know, it's more kind of loaded. And then this gay couple from Britain commissioned Rodin to make another version of it. And it got put on show in the um, town hall of Lewis, and the public didn't like it. It was too lewd for them. Too it was seen as pornographic effect. <laughs> too lewd for Lewis. <laughs> I mean, one of the reasons the guys who commissioned it weren't so keen on it is because his genitalia weren't big enough, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> the kiss in this country is, you know, it's synonymous with romantic love. And I thought the string was the opposite. <laughs> it was about complication and, you know, it's like the wedding ring drawing, really. It's obscuring the kiss with string. And it becomes quite erotic, actually. Mm. I mean, I was doing this last week. I wrapped it up last week. And I was thinking, this is, you know, somehow much sexier. <laughs> yeah, it's like bondage, isn't it? Yes, yeah, yeah. with string on it than it, it is about. So it's called A Kiss, 
with string attached. You know, it's called the distance, which is yeah. the opposite of the kiss. So it's just talking about complications with relationship, with romantic love. It's never that smooth. You know, it, it, it was more, yeah, everyday things um, that I was using these two great artists. And not quite around at the same time, but, you know, the, Rodin was a retinal artist and Duchamp was anti-retinal. So I thought that was quite good. Was it sort of lifting it out of the, its lumpness? You, talk, you talked about lump. Yes, uh, the, the lumpiness of sculpture, yeah. Yes, yes, most probably, yes. I think it we just had much more mystery and mystique and all the rest. I'm not trying to say I'm, I was improving <laughs> Rodin. And then, of course, the, you know, the furore about it. Well, there was a furore about it anyway, because people thought I was... It was very disrespectful and vandalism to, for me to wrap up Rodin's The Kiss, even though it was a temporary mm. interaction uh, for the Tate Triennale. And then... Um, and there was lengthy discussions about the string not damaging the sculpture yeah, and everything yeah, else. Yeah, and it's less p- problematic now, you know. They, then there's this group called the Stuckists who are stuck in the 19th <laughs> century. And that's why they're called Stuckists. And they very anti anything would undermine, say, Rodin. So they did a little seminar around my piece, about 30 of them. And then one of them got a big pair of shears out and cut off the string. Then suddenly all everything let loose. And the Tate wanted to prosecute this guy because he got arrested. And I said, I don't want to prosecute him because it's giving him oxygen. And then the police were saying, well, I don't see how a prosecution is going to stand up in court for a piece of string. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> You know, so in the end, the whole thing got dropped. But then, you know, it was on News at 10. It got a boying on News at 10. It said, you know, <laughs> Rodin sculpture strings cut. <laughs> so the whole thing became this hilarious. And Paul Miners, who was head of Trust Cheese, I think, at the tape for a while, I sat next to him at a Turner Prize dinner, and he said that he had to write all these letters to these people who were scandalised by me wrapping up the kiss. But he said he used an example of another artist who had taken the backs of Turner paintings. (laughs) And when I told him it was me as well, (laughs) he just roared with laughter. He just thought it was very funny. He's using a piece of mind to defend me wrapping up the kiss. But anyway... But it was interesting because there was a subversive power in in that work. But Mm. it made me, I know that it made me look at the kiss again in a way that I perhaps hadn't before. It was, as you say, such a sort of iconic object that that I'd probably stopped looking at it. But I wonder if that was a common experience for lots of people, that that it made them investigate that sculpture more than they might ordinarily have. I think so. And I think after, you know, the the poor old Rodin's kiss was languishing on various landings that the tape modern because it's not really modern you see it's mm-hmm. it's it just fits into 1904 or something yeah. and so they kept having it always very not so great places so i um thought oh you know after i've done something to it perhaps it'll go back so it did it became the pride of place in various exhibitions so that was good <laughs> and what about contemporary artists which contemporary artists do you most admire I love Bruce Nelman. Hmm. I like him the, because he's a polymath and he does lots of different things. And I think I do that too, you know, that he's he's not got some narrow path that he's treading. He's he's trying out all kinds of things. Also, it works very funny hmm. <laughs> and tragic at the same time. He's a liberator like Duchamp, isn't he? I mean, yeah. in the sense that he's, you know, so many artists have looked yeah. at these artists and they, they don't ape them, but they, they draw so much from them. He sends you on lots of different paths in, in your yeah. own way. No, he, he's he's great like that. I know it. So he's my favourite living artist. I do love Richard Wentworth's photos. Mm. They've been quite an influence on me. You know, the Making Do and Getting By, which yeah. is an ongoing series. He's interesting too because he's more of an oral artist now. He's more of a his practice has gone off into a more ephemeral mm. place, and it's it's interesting. I think. I think both of those, they have a sort of wonderful association with language, I guess, and as an association with a, a very sort of personal language, but also it, it reaches out to us in all sorts of interesting ways. Again, sends us off in different paths. Yes. Rich is an, an <laughs> extraordinary communicator, you know, when, yes. he, when he writes an email to you, <laughs> it's full of ideas. I know, uh, he's and, you know. extraordinary, he really is. And, and I think he's very influential to a lot of people, a lot of students, he gathers all these young people around him. And so I think he's given a lot to the contemporary sculpture world. So I think he's quite a generous character in that. 
I remember years ago, I met him in Rome in 1989, and I didn't know him then, but he came to Rome and he bought me a model of the Empire State building <laughs> which because he knew I was making these works with models and, and it was just such a lovely thing you know it's very nice to be thinking of me when he was in New York to buy me something I just thought that was great that's really lovely and so was that the the kernel of thought for the works that you made with the Empire State building no I was already the reason he bought that for me is because I was already making those sort of things but yeah I started using them in 1984 yeah earlier on you said that the kitchen table is your studio. So effectively, are we sitting in your studio now, even though we're just sitting in your kitchen? <laughs> well, it's, it's all over the house, really. But I do have a dedicated room in, in the house, which perhaps is the most studio-like place. Because my daughter, when she's back, she's always on the kitchen table doing whatever. But I quite like being mobile. <laughs> <laughs> and the Tate stuff, the new work, you know, the film... Um, did I talk to you about the film? No, tell made? us about the this film. This is a new work... And it's called Flag. <laughs> and it's set in a flag factory in Swansea. And we went to Swansea and filmed them making the Union Jack flag. They make all kinds of flags, but they also make Union Jacks. And the whole process takes a couple of hours, so we filmed that. And then I got all the rushes played backwards. And then me and Harry, my drone pilot from um, the House of Commons. We edited this film together and it's six minutes long and it's the undoing of the Union Jack. All the bits get reunited with the bolts of fabric and then the bolts of fabric go back into the you know, storage. And it's quite, you know, it's, it's a real tearjerker. <laughs> I mean, I'm hoping that's not the case. I'm hoping that the Union Jack, you know, survives for the next 10 years or 20 years or whatever. Because of Brexit, I feel perhaps it might fall apart. And it's in keeping, therefore, with the war room work yeah. that you made before. So it's almost, it's almost like a sequel, but it's about it symbols of, that are potent symbols in British life, effectively. Yeah, I mean, there's, there was a crown of thorns made in Bethlehem, which is another very potent symbol, made by Bedouin, Muhammad and his family, which are a Muslim, but they were making this Christian iconography. So that was a short film. And then there was the war machine, which was made in the poppy factory, and then there's this one, which is the flag. Yeah, so I think it's part of an ongoing series. Yeah. As you say, there's a sort of lament-like quality to some of this. But also there's a sort of, it's not disrespectful. One of the things about the war room is that it's a political work. Yeah. But in a way, it's looking at the kind of fetishism around the poppy mm. that, that's become a very active part of British life. But it's mm. also not in some way posturing in that direction. So no. you're, you're quite careful not to do that. It's yeah. Easy. No, I use the poppy negatives rather than the positives. Uh, and the film, that's in a factory in Aylesford where they make poppies from seven in the morning till ten at night, 50 weeks of the year pumping out poppies, you know, 80 million poppies. And it's just kind of year in, year out, there's always a war going on in the world. And those poppies go off to 80 different countries. It's not just Britain, you know, a colonial past. It's uh, very much embedded in the poppy. But the flag, obviously, you know, it's now we've got the, the, the English flag, which has become sort of quite racist symbol. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, we might just be left with that. Mm. I think a lot of my work is almost like preemptive strike. It's almost me doing sympathetic magic so this won't come about. Right. American Gothic was me willing uh, Trump not to win. <laughs> it's obviously not potent enough piece of magic. Uh, I suppose it's just fears I have, you know. Mm that the country that we now live in is not the country that we, it was, it was pre-Brexit, mm. you know. Yeah. And, and that's becoming so apparent during this Ukraine crisis that Boris is looking more and more buffoon-like, you know. He's not at the table at all. He's not, because mm. he's not part of Europe. Um, he's not making those kind of decisions. And so that's what the new piece, Island, the greenhouse piece is about, effectively. It's, it's this, this idea of isolation. Yeah, little England... I mean, Little Britain, you know, it's surrounded by cliffs. There's a lighthouse in the middle of it to try and warn people of, you know, the rocks. <laughs> and it's sitting on a foundation, which is the corridors of power from Westminster. So, and hopefully it'll look interesting as an object. You know, in the end, those large-scale installations, you want them to be immersive and you want them to be effective. And you never know if they are. And I've made them all to fit a space so, you know, that they have to succeed. Andrea Schlaker's not at all 
convinced that the floor is part of the piece. Um, and I had to tell her it was. <laughs> I know it sounds crazy, but I'm going to try it. I'll see what it looks like. If it doesn't work, it doesn't work. But, but yes, it's hard, you know, when you're making a new work for mm-hmm. Tate. You're retrospective at the Tate. <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> <laughs> a Brush With is sponsored by Bloomberg Connects, the app for arts and culture. The app offers access to more than 60 cultural institutions through a single download, ranging from the Museum of Arts and Design and the Guggenheim in New York to Penley House Gallery and Museum in Penzance in the UK. In 2019, Cornelia Parker showed a group of her photographs at Pollock House, a National Trust property in Glasgow's Pollock Country Park, at the heart of which is the Burrell Collection. If you download Bloomberg Connects, you can find an interactive guide to the collection, which features a section about the park. There's also a wealth of information on the borough's remarkable holdings across 6,000 years of history, including its top 30 musty objects from a 14th century longsword to Manet's pastel women drinking beer. To explore interactive guides to all the partnering institutions, download Bloomberg Connects today. The app is available from the App Store and Google Play, and you can keep up to date by following Bloomberg Connects on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. Let's talk about museums. Which museum do you visit most frequently? It must be the V&A, because it's about making, you know, and that's what I do, I make. So so it's a history of making. I mean, I've got a piece in the V&A, the, mm. the breathless piece, which is my first brass band squashing, <laughs> using the lifting mechanism of Tower Bridge. Oh, ah, really? <laughs> yeah, they've got these huge cylinders inside. They're 20 tonnes, and so we built a jig so that the when they went up and down, they would squash the brass band. Because um, <laughs> it's for the British galleries. It was for the British galleries, and it was last gasp of the British Empire, that one. <laughs> yeah. But also a, a very poignant piece about the sort of history of colliery brass bands and those sort of things. And of course, you know, and unions and um, the Salvation Army and um, British Legion, all things that are dying out. The Salvation Army ship all their instruments abroad now. The brass band's becoming a rare around thing. Actually, in the um, my film Flag, the last couple of minutes of the film has got a, a, an instrumental version of Jerusalem done by the Queen's military band um, and it's got cymbals crashing and everything. It's it's great. I do love the old brass band. <laughs> and I've used Jerusalem before. In, you know, I've worked in Jerusalem and I've cast a street in Jerusalem and, uh, you know, and I use Blake's drawing to take a piece of graphene from it. <laughs> That's right. And, you, and that prompted an explosion. Yes, it was Kostya Novoselov, a Russian physicist who discovered graphene. He breathed on this little piece of Blake on the night of the opening of the Whitworth and it triggered a fireworks display, <laughs> which was a Blakean abstract. It was a Blake's poetry is full of tempests and comets and whatever. And that he's another hugely important figure to you. You made yeah. the, the piece where you filled in the cracks between the paving stones next to his grave. For oh, Blake. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that will be in the Tate. Yeah, no, Blake, I, I love for his poetry more than anything else. Yeah. I mean, his graphic work or his, his paintings are not necessarily to my taste, but I do love his poetry. He obviously had a lot of passion. <laughs> Which cultural experience changed the way you see the world? It was coming to London when I was 15 with my art teachers and they level art group. I was just doing GCSE at that time. And we spent a week in London. We went around every gallery and museum possible. And it just blew my mind because I hadn't really been to any museums or galleries before or seen really physical artwork in the flesh before. And that's when I went to the Tate. That's when I had a little bit of an epiphany. I thought, perhaps I can show here one, t- you know, in the future, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> you know, it took me a long time to get there. <laughs> <laughs> I'm on the home straight now. I'm on the home straight. <laughs> and is it right that Tony Cragg was a particularly important discovery at that moment? Yeah, yeah. Tony Cragg, he was major for me early on. You know, I... Again, um, it's his work in the 
70s and 80s I like the most. You know, I'm not so keen on the stuff he does now, but mm. on the whole, I think it's really interesting. Again, that sort of ephemerality that you were talking yeah, about. Yeah, and his dexterity was ideas, you know. I remember seeing a lecture he gave, which was really brilliant. It was uh, Whitechapel, I think, who organised it. And it was all about materials and about how each material has a bubble around it with information, almost like a Wikipedia page for each bit. And when you take a piece of clay and you put it in the hand of, you know, Benini, say, then it suddenly takes on a much bigger bubble. And just by touching materials, you can change what they say. It was really wonderful. It was fantastic because he, he is a sculptor and he knows about materials. You yeah. Know? And it seems to me you've really taken that to heart and you've taken it to huge extremes in terms of the way that you use material. So everything becomes a material, right? Yeah, and, yeah, and, and yeah. Anything. so potent with meaning. Yeah, so, I mean, obviously, when I was in the House of the Commons doing my election artist, I mean, then we're ripping up these tiles, you know, and I was thinking, shit, I want some of those. <laughs> you know, to think of all the people who walked on those tiles over the last hundred years, you know, I mean, it was just... A phenomenal material, almost too phenomenal. But, mm-hmm. but the idea of making a floor for a greenhouse out of them, that felt right. That's really where they should go, somewhere humble. Mm. But everything, all the things I saw in the House of Commons, like what was the photograph of a toilet door when it was um, broken, uh, something about gentlemen. It's just the manners of the places are so strange because it's so macho, you know. One of the pieces I loved is the piece that you did in St Paul's Cathedral when you went up into the Whispering Gallery and you gathered the dust to make, <laughs> to make earplugs. <laughs> I went, it's so funny because I went up there with um, Rebecca Stevens, who was the first British woman to climb Everest, and I've got a terrible fear of height. So I thought I'd like to go up to St Paul's Cathedral with her because they used St Paul's Cathedral to measure Everest, you know, in old encyclopedias. So you know, so many of, of these um, St Paul's Cathedrals in the, the you know... Anyway, we're in the Whispering Gallery and I'm on my hands and knees because I'm actually terrified. (laughs) And then I notice this big, thick, very solid lump of dust that went all the way around the Whispering Gallery. It it collected in this space where nobody can see it. And and I just thought, wow, that's, yeah, great. So I'll make make Rebecca some (laughs) earplugs for going up Everest. (laughs) (laughs) How horrible, though. Yeah. Um, let's talk about literature. Which writers or poets do you return to the most? Oh, well, I love T.S. Eliot and George Orwell. Mm. There's certain people who I read over and over again. I mean, I read 1984 several times, and every time I read it, I think, wow. <laughs> you know, we're getting, yeah. it's almost now, you know. And he's very funny again. And T.S. Eliot, I just, it's so funny because my daughter, who's studying English and film at Sussex she she loves T.S. Eliot and we can both sit and talk about him for hours it's great it's really nice that she's got to the point where she can really appreciate him and what he says and just amazing poetry um Mm. Is it the obvious, i.e. the wasteland? I think of you and that period where, that you're so fascinated by. You talked about Duchamp and Dada and, and you know, the sort of 1920s mm. and you th- the, the wasteland at the same moment, that fragmented yes. vision. Yeah, and post-war and bleak. I mean, I think I must have used the wasteland or the four quartets, which I love as well. You know, I've used them for titles. and I did this piece for COP you know, last year. It was a neon sign that said, hurry up, please, it's time, which is a you know line from T.S. Eliot. But it's so pertinent for now. Mm. I think, hurry up, please, it's time. I know it's, you know, telling people to get out of the bar. Cause it's <laughs> <laughs> Again, we talked about art as premonition or art as sort of prescient. Yes. And it seems that, you know, there's so much of that in... Again, he looks so far back to the distant past. Yeah, And yeah. yet somehow brings it into this terrible well, present. Yeah, yeah no, no, it, it just feels very contemporary. Uh, you know, whatever your age... You know, I mean, I did it for A-level or whatever. but And I wrote my dissertation on a piece of wasteland that was next to the college I was at, Wolverhampton Poly, you know, linking it to T.S. Eliot's wasteland. So it was so funny that a piece of land had all this stuff that went on there that had a community of houses got knocked down uh, for the Molyneux Football Club to be moved over. Before they could move it over, a whole load of gypsy caravans appeared on it and they lived there for a while and I went and interviewed them and and I don't know it's just very contested piece of ground it was and it was a whole community that was sort of 
disbanded to go off and live in tower blocks. Mm. Um, I wanted to ask you about a piece, the Bronteian Abstract, because oh, that yes. seemed to me a lovely way to engage with a kind of literary culture, not just the words of the Brontes, but the, the lives that they lived whilst they were writing those words. Yeah, I did this sort of short residency with the Bronte Museum, and because they made all these tiny books when they were children, which you'd have to use a magnifying glass to read. I decided I'd going to make a series of images which were looking at things where they'd made a bit of friction, you know, like the tip of a quill pen that'd been cut, you know, by uh, Emily Bronte, or pinholes in a pincushion made by Charlotte in an electron microscope at Bradford University. So I, I was taking these objects and, you know, they, they were also both all artists. They made beautiful drawings and all the rest of it, except for Branwell, who was the son, who <laughs> sadly he didn't. His art was terrible, <laughs> and he, he really wanted to be an artist, and the others didn't, but they were writers. Um, you know, There was a thing that I did with them, um, was I, I invited two psychics to come to the Bronte Museum, and they did a reading of it, you know, after hours. You know, they, they said all kinds of stuff that, you know, I thought, oh, how did they know that? The very first film I made was for the Bronte show. Mm. It was about this 90-year-old lady who thought she was a great-great-grandchild of Branwell. Branwell apparently had an affair with the butcher's wife, <laughs> who's married, and but had kids by various, I think, various right, people okay. in the village. Phyllis Cheney, her name was, and I went down to interview her in Southampton, and she told me this story, and and she said she knew vaguely that her great great grandmother had been born the wrong side of the blanket, which meant she was illegitimate, and and she had a Cornish Irish. Heritage, you know, that the, the person who'd had sex with great 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 grandmother had been Cornish Iris. And the only people of that description in the whole of the county was the Brontes. And she also had long red hair, and so did Branwell. He had red hair. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was, there was lots of things that added up, you know. And she was a real character. She, I mean, we couldn't prove it unless we dug up the Brontes to get... <laughs> I thought we could find out from their hair samples, but they couldn't because it went across genders. And so she, she came to the opening and she sort of installed herself at the, um, the Bronte Museum for about two weeks, answering questions from anybody. And it was really great. I really liked it. And then when the, the opening was happening, the guy who was the director of the museum said, let's dig them up. <laughs> because she was so compelling and her story seemed to add up it's such a Brontean image as well of course I know (laughs) but also members of her family you know she got photographs of members of her family and they look very like um, Branwell you know had this hooked nose and they had hooked noses and red hair and blah blah blah. anyway I asked these um, psychics about if any of the Brontes had had children and they both said yes immediately and I said, what gender? And they said, female. And then one of them said, she's got long red hair. And you think that's amazing. It is amazing. It's really shivering. <laughs> and, and I don't know where they'd have got that information from. Mm. You know what I mean? They didn't know of Phyllis down in Southampton or, you know what I mean? They, they, anyway, who knows? What music or other audio do you listen to while working? I find it quite hard to listen to music when I'm working. It has to be sort of atonal music. Nothing was any crescendos, you know. Brian Eno's good, you know. Mm. Niels from um, Philip Glass, Steve Reich. Any minimalist music is good. It needs to be background music in a way. Mm. When I was younger, I used to listen to things like Mozart's Requiem, which is great, but it is full of crescendos. <laughs> uh, I mean, I love love all that. Yeah, but when I'm working, it's, you know, it's hard to listen. You know, it's not like painting or... Mm. Is that because you can't have too much literary involvement? You can't have words so much because you're, you're dealing with words, even though the words ultimately end up, as, yes. end up in a physical so form. So I do like instrumental stuff, yeah. So even like Jerusalem, the instrumental Jerusalem, I tried in my film to use, you know, the sort of Welsh <laughs> voice choir doing a Jerusalem and it just didn't work at all. And of course... 
what makes that Blakeian is the words, of course. We connect it to Blake through yeah, 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 it's yeah. his words. But, but, yeah. but it's, did it, does it sort of retain that same power yeah, without Blake's Yeah, it does. It does cause people, I think people know what it is. And if they don't, it doesn't really matter, you know. I don't want all the words because the words would then be spelling out you know, the films, I didn't want to f- stuff it down anybody's throat. This is about England. and <laughs> Well, it's, you know, to me it is, but because the film's really interesting because you can't tell it's going backward or forward at various points because things like the sewing machine, unsewing the, the, the flag, if you, unless you use sewing machines, it, it looks like it's going forward. And then there's um, scissor cutting, which I love, so loads of scissor cutting, which is, mm. you know, you're healing the fabric by cutting it. And that's really interesting. And you've got, you're cutting the red and you're cutting the blue and you're cutting the white. And so it's, it's cumulative, you know, and in the end you end up with real fabric. So it's interesting. So at the beginning of the film, I still haven't done the sound properly for that. A friend of mine is going to work on that. But it's almost like you, there's a radio on, you can get snatches of other songs and, and it's all backwards. And, and then it starts to coalesce and, and become Jerusalem. It sounds like so much of your work to have a preoccupation with abstraction and meaning and, and that sort of meeting of those mm. two things. Yeah, no, I like to think my work's abstract and representational at the same time. You know, very representational. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm always looking for abstraction in it, you know. And, I mean, some lovely scissor shots. <laughs> we, we shot lots of lovely scissor shots, but you can't put them all in the film. And I said to, to Harry, I said... Put all the scissor shots together and let's see what we get. (laughs) (laughs) Let's talk about other media. Which other media influence your work? The news. Yeah, I'm addicted to the news, basically. (laughs) And I did that piece in the House of Commons with the news. You know, I've used the news in quite a lot of work over the years. And um, I'm just a news junkie and it's terrible. I would love not to be, especially now, especially there's so much horror and then all through the Trump years, you know, I was hoping at any minute he'd be impeached properly. You know? <laughs> I don't know, it's a news cycle, I, and I'm engaging with a lot. And when you were election artist, it was interesting that as well, you, there's the piece in the Commons, as you say, where there's the newspapers, which are, there's a drone and they're being sort of lifted by the air. But then there's also you joined Instagram for the first time. <laughs> and that's you almost creating news, being a kind of passer on of the news, becoming a publisher in some yeah, way. Yeah, I like it a lot. I mean, I didn't stop doing it when I stopped doing, you know, so it's great. I mean, it makes me look that's a media that makes me look. So I'm always looking <laughs> for something to um, record so I can pass it on to you lot. <laughs> yeah, no, it's very, it's very creative, I think. Mm. And, and of course, that's through technology that that's yeah. come about. So your iPhone is very much a sort of artistic tool, isn't it? Oh, yeah. And I used to take photographs all the time anyway. So, I mean, it's not new, but it's just the, the going out into the world. One of the films I made for Election Abstract, which is one of the films I made for the you know, election artist, is about 1,500 images <laughs> I took on Instagram, animated with video, you know, and videos as well. And Harry, the wonderful Harry Dwyer, he helped edit all that together. So it ran as a three-minute tirade. <laughs> <laughs> it's a tirade of division, isn't it? It's lots of left and right and yeah, red yeah. and blue. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of that going on. And now there's lots of blue and yellow everywhere because of Ukraine. I'm toying with the idea of doing a, a print for for Ukraine for the summer show. Mm. I don't know if you know my red spot work. Yes, yeah, yeah. So this is this, it, it's in the, in the summer show every single year. I know and, it yeah. is. It's getting bigger because it's you know. Um, but I thought I might make a special one which is blue with yellow spots or yellow with blue spots <laughs> as a benefit print. Talking about other media, I wanted to ask you about Psycho Bomb because it's it's one of the clear references to film in your yes. work. And that's, tell us about that, just for the Met. Oh, yeah, yes. So that piece is called Transitional Object, Psycho Barn. And it's a psycho house set made out of an old red barn from upstate New York. The red barn in America is used as a quite benign, cookie-cutter sort of sweet thing that politicians stand outside you know doing their stuff and uh, it's very weird because it's all come from Europe and at the Met 
the whole of Central Park area was covered in red barns at one point because of all the immigrants that were coming out. They were going to call it New Amsterdam at one mm, point. Anyway, and then I just thought the Psycho House is done by a British director from Leytonstone, where I used to live for 10 years. Um, <laughs> and he sort of polluted the psyche of the Americans with his films and, and Psycho in particular and that architecture of the, the house is based on all this European architecture actually and he also based it on a house by the railroad by Edward Hopper um, and Hopper liked Hitchcock and vice versa so there's it's very Hopper-esque and so there was all this stuff going on you know cultural stuff going on in peace and you know there were hoppers at the Met and also hoppers at MoMA and there's a whole you know thing going on there so so it was sort of cognitive dissonance it was you know seeing something that looked very familiar but then thwarting that in a way but also those advertising scaffolds that mm. stand on top of buildings in the yes, States as well. I love those, yeah. And so I was looking at all that stuff too. And what was interesting about the Psycho Barn, it's all propped up and behind, like those advertising hoarding. That's what you saw from below, because certain parts you could see the, the actual Psycho Barn, so that was good. But it was, it was almost like a reverse sign. Uh, and all that propping up, I love, you know, you see that everywhere with all the, mm. the the water towers as well. So the stuff on the roofs of various buildings. But also, if you look out from the Met, you can see all these places that films have been made, you know, Ghostbusters or Batman or whatever, or King Kong, <laughs> <laughs> you know. And so New York is full of filmic references. So I do love film and I do um, look to them for inspiration. Is there a particular discipline in your daily working life that you see as an essential ritual? <laughs> well, my 10 minutes of Pilates every morning with the cat. She lies behind <laughs> my head, actually, and it means I can't put my head down. <laughs> this is Belle, who Belle. became a bit of a star of your Instagram yeah, when you were the had, election artist. She, well, she still is. <laughs> the mythology grows. <laughs> <laughs> and, and in fact, she's been munching in the background here. Attentive listeners may pick up. <laughs> <laughs> no, so I do my 10 minutes of Pilates because... Um, my body's falling apart <laughs> and it's a little virtuous thing that I do. Is that a mind clearing exercise or are you pondering your work as you're doing your Pilates? I'm listening to the news on the radio. <laughs> so it might prompt work. <laughs> oh yeah. I mean there's some things that are in the show, the tape, that's um, news at five, news at six, news at seven, news at eight, news at nine and news at ten, which are blackboards on which school children, primary school children have drawn news headlines so they've been cut up and then they just grab one and they put it on so when you're five you, you can barely write or understand what's going on in the world but by the time you get to 10 you're a lot more you know clued in and um, what you're writing is more important so it's just the news for these poor kids are going to have to live with the consequences of our actions um, or the inactions to come you know and Lily, you know, my daughter, she's, there's going to be this drawing in the show, or just outside the show, actually. <laughs> it's a drawing I made of a lapwing when I was 18, and it's quite photographically drawn. And uh, I never drew anything like that again, but uh, my parents had it on their wall. And, and when they both were deceased, I got it back. And Lily, who was about seven or eight at the time, said, oh, mom, you can draw. <laughs> <laughs> And so she dashed off some of her own versions of the lapwing, which is far more exciting than my very boring, staid <laughs> little... So, so hopefully we can have Lily's drawing and my drawing in the show. Oh, how lovely. If you could live with one work of art, what would it be? Ooh. Oh, I don't know. Perhaps The Fighting Temeraire by Turner. Or Jan van Eyck's The Arnolfini Wedding. Yeah. That'd be all right. I have a couple of those. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I think that those are solid choices, yeah. And I mean, you'd never, you'd never get bored with either of those no, two. No, certainly not the Turner. No, but I wouldn't get bored with the other one either. I mean, I've visited it really lots of times. 
there's another painting I really love, which is uh, The Battle of San Romano by Uccello. Oh, yes. Which is just stunning. It's just around the corner from the Arnolfini wedding. And if I go into the National Gallery, I nip along and see those two paintings. But that's an amazing painting. Indeed it is. And lastly, what's art for? What's art for? Fuck. <laughs> What's art for? It's its, it's ability to, to transport you to another place and it transcends all challenges of life. So its I'm not saying it's a bit of escapism. its It sort of makes your life worth living, really, you know, because it's something extra that animals don't do. <laughs> <laughs> it's a condensation of, of thought and uh, material and time and place. I mean, it's just a great thing. And it's, it's a sort of thing that we've, the privileged society has time for and abundance for. And a war-torn country has been robbed of. And that's why it's so desperate. So I think it's, it's an amazing privileged thing. It would be nice to think he was completely worldwide. Cornelia, thank you so much. Thanks. Cornelia Parker is at Tate Britain in London from the 19th of May until the 16th of October. And that's it for this episode. Please subscribe to A Brush With wherever you're listening and do give us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. Do also subscribe to our other podcasts, The Week in Art, a deep dive into the latest big art world stories, the top shows and the key issues every Friday. We're on Twitter at Town Audio and on Facebook and Instagram, of course. Production, editing and sound design on A Brush With are by David Clack and the producers of the Art Newspaper Podcasts are Julia Mahouska, Amy Dawson and Henrietta Bentall. Thanks also to Daniela Hathaway. A huge thank you to Cornelia Parker. See you next week. Bye for now. A Brush With is sponsored by Bloomberg Connects. Download Bloomberg Connects today and discover cultural institutions on demand.